Our Father, we thank you for this day in which we particularly remember the mothers, grandmothers in our midst, for those that have borne our children and have borne us. And Lord, we're just grateful for each of these ladies and what you have done in their lives and how you have blessed them with your hand from above. And we just pray that that will continue and that you will minister, especially not only today, but each day and that each lady will have a sense of your divine pleasure in their role as mother and grandmother and wife. And Father, we thank you for the presence of God here this morning. We ask you to bless our study of the Word of God. And we ask that throughout this complex this morning, you will be present in a powerful way in every class and in the service which is occurring concurrently. And we know, Lord, that because you are everywhere amongst your people, that you can minister in power without limitation. And so we submit to your authority and pray that you will be pleased to touch our lives according to each need in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn to the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 33, I'd like to begin reading with verse 26. Deuteronomy 33:26 There is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells secure in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help, the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. We've looked at the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy, and we have found that this is the final blessing of Moses upon his people. Before he's about to depart, and as we look at the 34th chapter, which we'll get to in a few minutes, we find that he is making that departure. But before that departure occurs, in the days, maybe the day uh, before, we don't know exactly the timing, but he gives this blessing. And as you read down through that passage, you see the uh, various tribal names mentioned and blessings or more prayers than, than anything else are given. And then in the final four verses of the passage, we have this hymn. It's, it's kind of a hymn to the Almighty God for His great blessing upon His people. And, and it begins that there is none like the God of Jeshurun. There is none like the God of the upright one, which we noted last week is the meaning of Jeshurun, the upright one. The, the God of Israel, when Israel is walking with Him, there is none like He. 800 years later, after this particular event. We have the so-called weeping prophet, the prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah gives an elaboration on this same theme in a very pointed manner. Let me read a few verses to you from the 10th chapter of Jeremiah. Hear the word, this is verse 1, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusion. 
because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. Now he's, he's talking about their images, their idols. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them for they can do no harm nor do any good. There is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great and great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is thy due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Uphaz, the work of a craftsman in the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men, but... The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. His wrath, at His wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. What a powerful comparison. I mean, it's almost, I mean, it is in, in ways humorous if it weren't so sad and so true. They have to nail their God to the wall so He doesn't fall over. And, and, and He's covered with gold and silver. That's the work of men's hands. And how does he compare to the God of Israel? There's no comparison at all. Because these wooden gods, they can't do any harm and they can't do any good. They're just meaningless. God of Israel is the Almighty God before whom all will stand. And, and Moses understands this. I think he understood it as well as Jeremiah. In verse 26 of this passage here in Deuteronomy 33, we have to understand that what we're reading is in part poetic license where we read of, of God who rides the heavens to bring your help and through the skies in his majesty. And some might say, and you could believe that there are those uh, students of religion who will say, well, shoot, that's just like the uh, stories of ancient Egypt where they have the Amun, the, the god of the sun, riding through the heavens as the chariot, in his chariot, and it's the chariot that's carrying the sun through the sky every day. You know, and that's the god coming up again and riding through the heavens in his chariot. Well, what we understand, of course, is that our god does not ride through the heavens in a chariot. He does not actually uh, sit on a cloud and float through the heavens because our God is an omnipresent spirit. If he, is ever, uh, if he ever appears in bodily form, it is because it is a, a, you know, a manifestation of his presence, maybe an angelic form, of course. Physically, he came in the form of Jesus Christ. But he's a spirit. And as Jesus said to the woman at the well, they who worship God will worship him in spirit and truth, neither here on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What's interesting is, however, that God at some times did send angels that appeared in chariots of fire, right? We know the story of Elijah in 2 Kings. And Elijah is being ready, is, is ready to be taken up. And what happens? What does Elisha see? a fiery chariot and, and, and horses of fire coming down and swooping up Elijah and taking him up into heaven. And then Elisha himself will experience this. Several years later, when he and his servant are trapped at Dothan by this Syrian army, and the servant looks out and he sees this Syrian army all around the city, and he says, whoa, we're in big trouble. 
and Elisha says to the Lord, open his eyes that he might see, and he opens his eyes, and beyond the army of the Assyrian is a whole army of angelic chariots and horses of fire. Similar poetic speech is used in Psalms, of course, in many places, but uh, I thought one particular passage in Psalm 104 would be interesting here. Psalm 104, beginning at the first verse, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the winds of the, wing, the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, or the angels his messengers, and flaming fire his ministers, or his ministers' flames of fire. This, of course, is again poetic speech. It portrays the truth in a way that uh, gives us a sense of the reality of who he is. The truth behind all of this, of course, is that God is instantly present for his people. Wherever we are, whenever we are, in whatever condition we are, God is always there, instantly present. No matter how great the adversity, our God is able to deliver, and he will. This truth is repeated in the 27th verse of Deuteronomy 33, where we read, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The, the purpose of this statement or of this particular uh, phrase that Moses gives here is to cause Israel to visualize God as a mighty fortress held up, you know, by th this great fortress of his refuge, of his security, is held up by his eternal, all-powerful arms. And, and Israel can always flee into that refuge no matter what, no matter what the situation that they would face, no matter how threatening the circumstances, they would always find deliverance and refuge in Yahweh. This is powerful because you have to contrast this with the gods that, of the peoples that they were, had already conquered and were yet to conquer. Gods whom they rushed to and, and gods who couldn't answer, who couldn't do a thing because they were nothing but wood, covered with gold, no power. And yet Israel's God was invisible, and yet he was more real than these visible gods of the surrounding pagans. God's arms were always strong enough to give absolute security and to destroy the enemies of Israel. God's promises such as this are found throughout Scripture. He will meet the needs of His people, both in this life and in the next. What is, I think, a very significant truth here relative to all of this is that it is in the very hope of eternity that we as God's people find peace in the midst of adversity. Our peace is rooted in the fact that we know that one day we will dwell forever in Him in absolute total security. And with that knowledge, we can go through whatever life has to offer because we aren't faced with a hopeless situation. It's like the passage you read in Jeremiah where, they're talk, where, where he's talking about uh, the signs in the heavens which are causing a fear and fright. Well, think about it today. What, what are they producing movies of? You know, asteroids that are going to come in and clobber us and, and we're going to have another great disaster like supposedly happened 65 million years ago which wiped out the dinosaurs. 
nobody was here to see that, but I mean, you know, it's, it's what some are coming up with as, as a reason for why there are no dinosaurs today. Many, many people are going to be afraid of this, but we shouldn't be afraid of this because it's already predicted in the book of Revelation. It says God's going to cast a great mountain into the ocean, and there's going to be a holocaust. Why not an asteroid? That would be a great mountain, wouldn't it? But it's not anything for God's people to be afraid of. We are not to be fearful of any of these signs and wonders. If you go down through the course of history, you'll discover that one of the great things that caused fright to human beings throughout history was the appearance of a comet. Now, for you and for me, we want to get out, oh, there's a comet, where can I see it, you know? Trying to find a comet. I even tried to take a picture of the last one that went through, and it didn't turn out so good, but... You know, it, it's an exciting thing to think, oh, we're looking at something that won't come back for another 75 years. We probably won't be around to see it next time. Thank the Lord. But in, in the past, these things have caused great fear and great fright, and people have been uh, biting their nails because they thought the end of the world was coming. But for God's people, the eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. You and I will find, I think, that this truth is very poignantly presented in an oft-quoted passage found in the 91st Psalm. This Psalm, of course, has always been a well-known Psalm amongst God's people. It was made particularly popular when Elizabeth Elliot published her book In the Shadow of the Almighty. But in, in this Psalm, we read this truth in a very, very graphic way. Beginning in the first verse, we read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will look, you will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. We always have to look at promises that God makes, such as this, within their eternal context. Because Psalm 91 does not mean that God's people, wherever they are, at any moment in time, will never suffer trials, tribulation, or adversity. Because most of us can, can attest to the fact that we have gone through trials, tribulations, and adversity. But it means, of course, that we rest in the center of God's hands, and no matter what happens in this world, our security is guaranteed. Because underneath are the everlasting arms. We are within the bulwark of his great eternal fortress, as it were. And as we read in that last line of verse 4 of Psalm 91, his faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Nothing can break through the faithfulness of God. And, and that is what we must rest upon. 
You and I generally arrive on the scene, to use an old phrase, an hour late and a dollar short. There's no way in which you and I can rescue another person from an adversity which is of spiritual nature. It is God who will rescue them. We can be agents that God might be used. We might use. We can definitely be people of prayer. But it is God alone who can rescue his people from spiritual adversity. For his faithful ones, God is, as the scripture says, an ever-present help in time of need. Think about that verse for a moment. Ever-present. It means there's no moment in which God is not here to listen to our prayer. There is no time when God is off doing something else and busy and therefore forgets about us or can't make it back in time because he's helping somebody else. He's always, ever, I mean, this is, we, we can't grasp this, but he's everywhere present, totally with all of his power, not a piece of God. We're, we're not just sharing a little piece of God and therefore that piece that we have might not be quite strong enough to overcome the enemy at this moment. No, no. God, it's as if God is totally present here this morning as if he were nowhere else, but he is everywhere else too. Now, if you can figure that one out, you've got a very high IQ, <laughs> you know, like 1,020. But, you know, we can't grasp that, but it happens to be a truth taught in the word. God always gives help to his people according to two prerequisites, however. The first is that their trust is in him. God helps us if we trust him. We must trust him. We must place our trust in him. And of course, we do that by crying out to him for help because we're demonstrating our trust by praying. And the second prerequisite is that whatever he will do must be according to his will according to his great sovereign plan for us. We trust in him that his perfect will will be carried out in our lives. I think we should approach God in these situations as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are in certain ranks of the church people who don't like this passage, but I'm sorry it happens to be in Scripture. In Luke 22, Jesus has gone through the upper room experience and they have gone out and they have passed through the southern edge of the city. They've gone out the gate. They've gone down into the Cadrone Valley. They've come up the other side into what is known at that time as the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 39, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. There is a very, very powerful truth in this passage. There are those who teach the so-called health and wealth gospel who feel that because we're children of the king, we have every right to all the, the perks of the kingdom now as if we are already in heaven. But as you read scripture, you will discover, as we do in this passage, that Jesus was in the midst of a great tribulation. 
you and I cannot possibly even comprehend what Jesus was going through. Because as he knelt there at the rock in the garden and prayed, he wasn't just saying, oh God, I'm afraid to die on the cross. He was facing the putting upon his shoulders of all of the weight, of all of the sin, of all of men, of all of history. Now, when you just turn on your television set and watch it for a little while, and you think of the, the, the grossness of what's happening right now, what happened yesterday in this country, or what little of this country is reported on television, and you multiply that by thousands of years and billions of people, you get a sense, maybe a little bit at least, of what we're talking about in terms of the intensity of sin. It's massive. And he had to carry all of the weight of that sin on the cross. And I think the hour he most dreaded was the hour in which he would have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this passage in Luke, we see that God basically said, I am not going to deliver you from that hour. Jesus knew that. But Jesus cried out, If thou art willing, remove this cup from me. God did not remove that cup from him. You and I may have to drink from the cup of adversity, tribulation, trial, difficulty. Many of us, all of us probably have to some degree at some time, and many of us will to some degree later on. But what is so powerful about this passage is it was not God's will to deliver him from the hour of the cross or from that hour when he would see the back of God. But what God would do for him is to send him an angel to strengthen him in the midst of that time. So when you face that tribulation, when you go through that trial, God may not just pluck you right out of it, but he will be there. His angel will be there to strengthen you. And as the footprint, poem footprint says, those footprints you see when there's only one set, that's God carrying you through the tribulation. Sometimes there's a bridge over troubled waters and sometimes there's not. But God is always there. He is always with his people. Whether they must be on the lake and the waves are too great and they can make no progress or whether the seas are smooth. It's sometimes, of course, it's when the seas are smooth that things actually turn worse for us because we take our eyes off of him. Verse 28 in this uh, 33rd chapter of uh, Deuteronomy, we read that, So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded, in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. I think this passage refers not only to the physical blessing which God will pour out upon his people, and you and I experience it every day, and especially for Israel, because they were about to enter Canaan. Here they were. They were on the border. There was the land. They could see it. They were about to cross over, and God was going to be with them and carry them through them and give them the land. He was going to pour out tremendous blessing upon them in the land of Canaan. But it also refers to the ultimate spiritual blessing that comes from being in the true promised land, the eternal kingdom of God. If Israel walked in obedience to God, God would make their experience in the land of Canaan the greatest foretaste of heaven as was possible to have on this planet. 
And I think you and I, in spite of whatever difficulties and tribulations we have been through, have from time to time experienced a foretaste, a little of that foretaste. Have you ever gathered together in a group of believers in a time of rejoicing in prayer and prayer and a sense of God's presence? So it would be for Israel in Canaan if they were obedient and if they trusted in him. However, at the very, very best, I mean, imagine if you can. Well, imagine the best day you've ever had in your life. H how do you think that will stack up aside heaven? Pretty pale, I think. The best day in Canaan would be pretty, pretty poor compared to the, I, I don't even want to use the word worst day in heaven because there won't be any worst days in heaven, but compared to e eternal life, there, there is no comparison really whatsoever because when we read those descriptions, they're given to us in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. To whatever degree we can understand that, interpret that, we know that it's glorious and grand. And what is so significant about it is the phrase that says, there shall no longer be any death, any death, mourning, crying, or pain. That will be gone. And that, of course, is the, is, is the essence of the human condition. Only as believers, we know that there is an ultimate salve for that. But think of the people in the world for whom there is no salve. They go out and they drink themselves under the table. They take drugs. They do whatever they can to try to ease the pain. And it will not be eased because there is only a bomb in Gilead, as we would sing. It's in God alone that there is peace and hope and joy and deliverance from the pain of human existence. The final verse of Moses' blessing is verse 29. He says, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. I mean, that is a passage of great victory. It talks about the paramount blessing of being a people saved by the Lord. The God of Israel would not only save them physically, which he would do on numerous occasions, but the ultimate, of course, deliverance is in eternal salvation. And some people will poo-poo that, and they'll say, well, yeah, that's great for the, great, you know, for the uh, sweet by and by, but what about the nasty now and now? I want deliverance here. Well, God is our deliverer here. But that doesn't mean we don't have pain. That doesn't mean we don't have suffering. It doesn't mean we don't have trials and tribulations because the scripture promises that we will. He wants us to become strong in our faith and trust in him. And that's part of maturing in Christ. We too are a people saved by the Lord. In this 29th verse, it, says, it refers to God as the shield of your help. The sword of your majesty. And as I thought about that, to me the passage in Ephesians 6 came where we read of the shield of faith. Is that any different from the shield of his help? And we read of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Is that any different than the sword of his majesty? Israel had the, sword of his, uh, the, the shield of his help and the sword of his majesty. And we have the shield of faith and the sword of the word of God. It's the same. And it did for Israel what these do for us. These are the weapons 
by which the world, the flesh, and the devil can be overcome and territory can be taken from the evil one. You know, our, our job here on earth is not just to make sure the devil doesn't get any more territory. Our job is to take some back from him. And that's by the witness which we make and which we create in this life. And by the lives which we touch. When we encourage one another, when we witness of who God is to those that don't know him, this is expanding the kingdom of God and reducing the kingdom of the evil one. And that's what we're here to do. You remember the parable of the talents. The guy who stuck his talent in the ground just so he'd be able to give it back to his Lord was not praised at all. Just holding ground here. Enemy isn't going to get any more. Well, that's good, but our, our role is to take back some territory from the evil one by God's help. And that's what this passage is talking about. It said Israel was to tread upon their high places. Now remember, the high places in the land were where the cult images and altars were built. It's where the groves were. It's where the uh, pillars of Asherah were built. And as I've told you before, when, if you really look at these things, you'll find that they're all sexually oriented. And they took the sexual nature of man and, and perverted it with demonic worship and brought it all together in the worship of these fertility gods and goddesses and all these related things. And there was all kinds of cult prostitution, male and female, related with all of this. And they are to tread upon these high places, meaning cut down those groves, smash those altars, burn those images, and convert the hilltops to places where they praised to God, gave praise to God himself. Israel would spoil and desecrate their physical and their spiritual enemies. And by what power? Well, in the New Testament, Paul tells us what the power is. Let me just read a verse. You don't have to turn to it. In Colossians 2.15, it, it talks about Jesus canceling the certificate of debt and so forth, having nailed it to a cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. How could Israel walk on the high places of these pagan gods? By the power of the one who, would, who had delivered them, by the power of the one who would one day walk on this planet himself and die on the cross and earn the victory over the rulers and principalities and powers and the evil forces that are behind those gods and goddesses on the hilltop. By that power, they could walk on those hilltops and, and they could desecrate those pagan gods and offer praise to God from the very hills where the enemy was exalted before. Well, let's go to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 34. <clears throat> Let me read the first eight verses. Now Moses went up from the, mount, from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain in the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. 
then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Who wrote this chapter? Records the death of Moses. Wrote it. Well, it's possible Moses wrote it. Moses is described in Scripture as a prophet. Prophets are those that can relate through God's inspiration things of the future. So Moses could have written down what was about to happen. <laughs> I don't know, you know, it'd be kind of strange to read about it, I would think, as he wrote it. Oh, really? <laughs> well, maybe this is good. But, you know, that, that possibility shouldn't be surprising to us. But it's also very possible that Joshua wrote this and that Joshua appended it to uh, the end of Deuteronomy or that later uh, Jews did. We, we don't know. Uh, all we know is it's part of the divine word of God and whether you attach it to the end of Deuteronomy or to the beginning of Joshua, it doesn't really matter too much. It is the transition chapter because as we go on to the last four verses of the chapter, we discover that Joshua is the central person. So it's a perfect transition from the story of Moses to the story of Joshua. This passage is both sad and glorious at the same time. It's sort of, like, sort of like sweet and sour, right? It's sad from the human point of view because Israel was losing the man who for 40 years had basically been their father, their spiritual leader, their guide in the wilderness. I mean, he had been all but God to them. And, and they were losing the man through whom the very first written, recorded word of God was given to Israel. How important was this? So much so that throughout the rest of Scripture, it'd be constantly referred to as the law of Moses. And Jesus himself in the New Testament referred to Moses. And by that, he meant the Pentateuch in talking about the word of God. This man had been a powerful example to his people. As the writer of Hebrews pointed out, and you may remember from reading in Hebrews, that it, we're told that Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures associated with being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, Moses could have enjoyed one of the most prestigious positions in all of history. In fact, as some say, it's possible he could have even become Pharaoh. But he chose rather to follow God's will and to be committed to his people who were slaves in the land. And, you know, he, he was even willing to do that before he was led by God to lead Israel in the Exodus. So God was working in the heart of this great man. But the passage is also glorious because it describes the triumphal homegoing of one of the greatest saints of all history. It highlights the moment when Moses would lay down this body of death and enter the joy of his Lord. Uh, you know, you have to feel that Moses was human. And as he climbed the mountain, knowing that he was going to die up there, I mean, there was a certain, you know, degree of, of uh, concern there. I mean, nobody rushes forward to death with, I shouldn't say nobody, but most people don't rush forward to death with great joy and say, whoopee, you know, I'm, I'm glad to leave. We all have a desire to hang on, if not for ourselves, for others. And certainly Moses, I mean, he had two and a half million down there that he, he might have thought he could have hung on for. But there was the hour in which he had to pass the mantle. And he had to trust God with Joshua. It's glorious also in that perspective that it describes the transition from one godly leader to the next. No matter how much esteem we may accord to Moses, we must not diminish 
the role that Joshua played. God did not leave his people without a shepherd. Can you imagine Joshua's position? I have to step into the sandals of Moses. Oh, brother. Would not be an easy task to become for Israel what Moses had been. But I think as Joshua faced that situation, he knew that as Moses, he would merely be the under-shepherd. The shepherd of the sheep was God himself. God would have to shepherd this flock, and Joshua would simply be the under-shepherd. I, I don't know if, if you can see it here, but that very first verse, it's, it's very succinct. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah. That's all it says. Can you read into those verses, that verse? Moses knew he had to go up the mountain. All right. The hour was come to leave. What was he going to have to do? Did he just hike on up the mountain? I think he had a farewell time with his people. You know, I think there was a lot of hugging and kissing and crying because Moses was going and they all knew it. And it was not easy for Moses, although these people had, had been, at uh, one moment God had said, step aside, Moses, I'm going to fricassee them all, and I'm going to raise up a new nation from you. For Moses' heart, even at that moment, he says, oh no, Lord, don't do that. What will people think of your name? Although Moses had been so ticked by these people at times <laughs> that he was ready to depart from them, he loved them. He had given his very life for them, and it was not easy for him to leave. I don't think it was easy for him to leave at all. I think there was a lot of love, hugging and kissing and crying and, and wailing there before Moses finally turned and began to go up the mountain. I mean, they were camped only five miles from the border of Canaan. How close he was to the promised land. Moses climbed the ridge to the east. Did Moses set his face like a flint and just press up the mountain never to look back? I don't think so. I think in his climb, Moses stopped often and turned and looked back at his people down there on the plain and thought, these are the people that God has given me the privilege of shepherding all these years. God bless these people. Help them to walk with you. And I, I think that happened to him numerous times as he climbed that ridge towards the top of Mount Nebo. It's a very dry area over there. Not a lot of trees would have blocked his view. I think those Israelites who had good vision probably could have followed him a long way up the mountain with their eyes as he climbed. Whatever was the case, he ascended Mount Nebo to the summit called Pisgah. We don't know exactly which mountain is Nebo today. Certain mountains are declared to be probably Nebo, and there's one over there that has a long tradition, and, and there, it's, it's, there's a, um, a little building up there in honor of Moses. The peaks along the ridge, what you have to visualize this is the plain of Moab is down in the Jordan Valley. And the Jordan Valley is, is built like this. I mean, it's quite a steep escarpment. It's a graben, it's a downfaulted area. There's a major fault line that runs right through there. And uh, both sides, there's a, as a, an escarpment that rises rather rapidly up to the upper lands. To the east, it, it's more impressive than it is to the west because it rises higher. And, and so Moses, as he stood in the plain of Moab and looked up towards Nebo, knew that he was going to have to climb this peak that is nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. 
Well, we might say, oh, that's no big deal. But we have to think about the fact that the plain of Moab is almost 1,000 feet below sea level. So that adds another 1,000 feet. So we're talking about climbing 4,000 feet out of the valley here to the top of Mount Nebo. He's 120. That's why it's so fascinating when, when it says there he was 120, but his vigor was not abated, at least to the degree that he couldn't climb the mountain, which he was able to do. From that vantage point, God showed him the promised land. Can you imagine it? He's standing up there and the voice of God comes to him and he says, Moses, look to the right, look to the north, and sweep your eyes across the land. You're not going there, Moses, but look at the land. And we're told in the passage that from that vantage point, he looked to the north. And, and from the edge of the escarpment there on top of Mount Nebo, if you look directly to the north, what you would see would be the Plateau of Gilead. And the Plateau of Gilead is, was already occupied by Israel. They had taken it from the Amorites. And they were living there. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh were living there. And it's a plateau that rises about um, three or 4,000 feet above sea level. And... Um, it's uh, split by the Jabbok River, which runs down through there and, and into the Jordan. It's, it's in the country of Jordan today. And then as he looked beyond that, to the further to the north, he would see Mount Hermon sticking up there. And uh, depending on the time of the year, uh, snow would be up there. And <clears throat> as he looked down towards the base of it, he would see the land of Dan. Now, Dan wouldn't occupy that area at first. They would move up there later. But if you visit Israel today and you go to the north up there in the lower slopes of Mount Hermon, it's a, it's a beautiful area. It's a national park up there. And you're in the trees and, and the Jordan River literally flows out from the base of the mountain. Jordan River has three major sources and a couple of them just are springs that just burst right out of the mountain. I mean, you can walk right up to, to a rock like this. I look down and there's a river coming out of the rock. And, and so he looked up there and he looked down. He could see the Sea of Galilee out of which comes the Jordan River wending its way down through the Jordan Valley. The, the, the Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. So he's, he's looking down there at that. And then his eyes begin to sweep further over towards the west. And, and he sees the, the land of Galilee. And then further south he sees the, at that time, the tree-covered mountains of Ephraim where one day David's son Absalom would hang his hair in a tree, which isn't there anymore. But, and, and then further south, he looked straight across and he would see the drier hills of Judea. And then further to the south, down towards the Negev. And as he looked almost directly west, he would be able to see the top of the Mount of Olives. I don't know, did the Lord, did God say to him, Moses, from the top of that mountain, my son, 1400 years from now, will ascend to heaven after he had completed the work of salvation. Did he reveal that? I don't know, it's not recorded here. But he would have been able to see the top of the Mount of Olives. And beyond that, the Mediterranean Sea, which they called the Great Sea. And, and down to the south, he could see the, the dry area of the Negev where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had lived in tents and had created, dug the well at Beersheba and been given the promise of Canaan. And then we're told he could look directly down from the top of the mountain and there was the city of Palms, Jericho like an oasis there, and it is literally an oasis. If you ever get to go there, Jericho is one of the most wonderful places to visit. It's, it's, it's like an oasis, especially in the wintertime. It's freezing in Jerusalem, maybe snowing. You go down to Jericho at 72 degrees, you know. There's citrus hanging off all the trees. It's really beautiful. And, and then, of course, you could look through the whole sweep of the gorge in which the Dead Sea is all the way down to Zoar at the southern end. This was the view he was given. No smog in those days. It would have been a beautiful grand sweep of the land that was given to Moses. And then God planted him. 
from the grand sweep of Canaan with his physical eyes to the instant sweep of heaven with his spiritual eyes. Can you imagine? Just like that. Moses was transformed. His body was left behind. He didn't go up like Elijah. But he didn't die of some disease. Didn't die of old age. God just simply took his spirit from his body. He said, come home, Moses. Canaan is a very small land. And across that landscape in the future, Moses couldn't see it. But across that landscape in the future would march the armies of Egypt, the armies of Assyria, the armies of Babylon, the armies of Persia, the armies of Greece, the armies of Rome, the armies of Byzantium, the armies of Arabia, the armies of the Seljuk Turks, the armies of the Crusaders, the armies of the Ottoman Turks, the armies of the British, and the armies of modern Israel. No land in the world has been more fought over than that rocky, barren, teeny hunk of land. And you explain that using naturalistic means, and you will be having to look a long time to find any answers. They're only in Scripture. Well, next week, I would like to uh, finish off our story of Moses in the last verses here.